0: Hello. Welcome back to the Artistic Beginnings Podcast. Thank you,
1: Melody. It's wonderful to be in Podcast mm. Land.
0: Yes, Pod Podland, as we like to Cast call it. Cast land. I just realized I, I just realized because our like regular intro is pre recorded. I haven't seen our podcast. <laughs> Shut
1: up. <laughs> I do it every week.
0: No wouldn't it be hilarious if like the way that podcasts work is that anytime someone plays the podcast it's you actually talking to them like it's live the whole time yeah
1: i can't tell you how tired i am of saying artistic beginnings
0: (laughs) sorry that really that really got me yeah it pinched your goat
1: Now it's gonna be uh and no nope, he illicit. says
0: fuck so much oh, okay. Mitchell he says it so much that's Fair why enough. I said it because I knew so Moli, who says
1: fuck a lot in this episode
0: Ari Ari Axelrod our guest <laughs> I, this no, week I believe it's
1: Ari fucking Axelrod
0: <laughs> Ari fucking Axelrod yeah he's a great um, guest Ari is such yeah he's such a gem in this world I uh, Like, I've only met him in person one or two times, but he, I love him so much. He's so incredible. And has such a cute dog.
1: <laughs> the the real things that matter about Ari, his dog.
0: <laughs> it, you know, I mean, he would, I feel like he would be one of the first to say that that is a, that is an important trait to his life is his dog. <laughs> okay, you
1: heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Ari believes yeah, in his I dog. I
0: can't wait for a text from him being like, what yeah, the fuck? Yeah, what <laughs> was this intro?
1: Well, Ari has some really great conversation anyway. with us uh, in this episode, so I'm excited to <laughs> listen to his stories.
0: <laughs> yeah yes and he has he has a really i feel like we say this often but his his story is is really inspiring and really incredible um considering i don't want to give too much away i guess you know what maybe we should just let him do it
1: let's just just let him let him do it great
2: this is ari well, I think, you know, I, before I had surgery, you know, all of these physical activities, this like yogic warming up, I was limited to, you know, if, if I so much as dropped my chin to my chest, I would lose all sense of motor function in my, in the left side of my body and I would get oh, sharp wow. shooting, burning, oh yeah, horrible nerve pain down my neck, my back, my arm, all the way into my fingertips. So if that was just, you know, drop your chin to your chest. So any warm-up that I learned in college, because I had surgery after my junior year, was coupled with some semblance of ptsd and Mm. i don't think that i have taken the time to find a new thing that works now that i am you know fully able but the one that jen waldman does to start her classes at the studio i like a lot i like that one a lot but that's not mine it's not mine. Mm. <laughs> well, you can steal. <laughs> yeah.
1: Of course. <laughs> so after that experience, it, it seems like you started this I, I guess you could call it like blog posts almost on, on your website, but they seem almost like poetic in the in the way that you write them. So I'm not sure a blog post is <laughs> is so uh, a poetic right? blog
0: post. <laughs> yeah. They're, oh, wow. They're,
1: yeah, they're interesting short form kind of writing that, that you do. And and I find them very interesting. How did that kind of start
2: (laughs) oh my god you know I have to say you are the first person who has ever asked me about my blog so Thank you. It's very new. I was, for much of my life, I, you know, believed that I I thought I wasn't a good reader, either because I had decided that for myself or because other people had told me that and I chose to believe them. So I, you know, didn't read. I mean, I I read, but, you know, I I didn't enjoy reading. I would always have to reread something and go back and start over, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So reading was very laborious. It was really just, Really fucking frustrating. And then my friends, I'd heard a lot of people who also consider themselves to be not readers say, you know, oh, but those Harry Potter books, they were just, I don't really read anything, but I loved those books. You should mm-hmm. read them. I was like, oh, yeah, but like, I really hate reading. So, like, <laughs> oh, I'm not going to read the Harry Potter. Those are seven books that are, they're all long and they just get longer. And then two of my best friends said, you're not allowed back into our apartment until you finish the Harry Potter books, because they're the biggest Harry Potter fans. So I started reading them, and I could not put them down to the point where I would like cancel plans for an entire day to finish the Goblet of Fire. Mm. I mean, I you can't put down the graveyard scene. You just can't. So in doing that, I realized that I not only was, you know, not a bad reader, but I loved reading. I always felt full after finishing, you know, felt like eating, like I was devouring text, and then it Would leave me feeling filled and Mm -hmm. i was having a conversation with carly valancey and i said you know i feel like i don't read in the way that people in the way that most people read like i feel like i equate the way other people read to like eating an entree they read one book at a time from start to finish they finish Mm. the book and then they move on to another book. But I, since finishing the Harry Potter books with this newfound love of reading, it's like, I'm reading 10 books right now. I pick one up, I read, you know, a couple of chapters, I put it down and I'm just kind of like, what am I in the mood for? And so I said, you know, I think it's like, it's like tapas reading. I'm like reading in small portions. And she said, that sounds like a blog post. You should write that blog post. I've never really written a blog before. but and then I thought, you know I, I use my Instagram and my and my Facebook for you know places to, post thoughts of mine on the world or you know to promote different ideas or questions and you know I I've heard from people that they really like my writing so I thought you know what 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 would it look like if I sat down and wrote a blog on tapas reading and Mm. then it just felt like second nature so that's how it's that's how it started that's amazing. So yeah.
1: as we start transitioning a little bit more into your backstory, getting a little bit of an understanding of how how you started out in the arts, one of your blog posts, the Happiness Awards, I, I yes. really resonate with that one. And it really aligns well with Mel, Mel and I's mission of this podcast in particular, where it's kind of like do what you love and you don't have to have a, a specific outcome for other people. It's more for yourself. And that's kind of what yeah. I was getting from that post. I'd love to turn around one of the questions that you have. in there for yourself and and say, what do you do, particularly in this time? I'm just going to take it word for word. I, I hope that's okay. What can you do daily to make your life worth more than any career benchmark or trophy?
2: Well, I think... That's a great question. Whoever wrote that, (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's a great question. We
0: can't take credit. See, we stole your question, so you can steal Jen's
2: warm up. (laughs) That's right. I, well, I think now, I mean, I I had COVID, I had the virus. So Mm -hmm. I'm filling my days with meeting myself where I'm at and being as kind to myself as I possibly can. But I think if you look at benchmarks right now, now, really any benchmark that anyone was tallying before COVID, at this point, don't, like, as harsh of a reality as it is, they don't really matter because everything has stopped. All of the hierarchies that we built or that were built for us and we were told as actors that we were not to challenge, they're gone. Mm. I mean, look at Sondheim's birthday. Everyone from, you know, um, Jake Gyllenhaal to Meryl Streep to Mandy Patinkin, they're all on Zoom. They are all doing what we are doing. So I feel kind of bad for the people who put the worth of their lives and their happiness was contingent upon these benchmarks that now don't matter. The industry and the world as it was is gone. So what I'm doing is what I've done since I had surgery five years ago is I'm living my life every day as if it were the last because we have no... No control over time. And as Brene Brown says, time is our most precious, non-renewable resource. Once Mm -hmm. it's gone, it's gone. So if we spend our time looking to the future, you know, once I get my equity card and once I get an agent or whatever, Mm -hmm. none of which is in your control, by the way, you miss every single moment that's in front of you. You're looking beyond it. And now something like this happens and you look back at all the moments that you missed and what was it all for? So I'm spending my days now, much like I spent my days before the pandemic. The only difference is I'm inside more and I can't see my friends and I'm not, you know, teaching my my clients in person, but I'm still taking every day as a gift, not as if it were a gift, but as that it is a gift. I mean, the fact that we are here at all, like the odds that, that the three of us, us all exist is miraculous and scientifically almost impossible but yet here we mm-hmm. are and then the fact that we wake up every single day like we think about what it means to go to sleep and to then wake up and to do that every single day like that is miraculous. So I, I find it like it was such a wasted opportunity to not wake up every day and say, look, I here we are again. We get to try again. And, and I don't think that life stops or your quality of life has to disintegrate or decrease during this pandemic. If we stop living, then what are we giving the people who are fighting for their lives? We're not giving them anything to fight for. If we wait for, you know, the world to come after this, pandemic and we stop living and we as artists stop creating we're doing the nurses and the doctors and the people in the hospital beds a disservice by giving them nothing to fight for
0: is that way of thinking the way you've always been
2: or <laughs> was there no. so, like oh, i'm very curious
0: no. how you got there because you know i agree but i also know that i did not think that way my whole life i'm, I'm curious what sure. that turning point for you
2: was so, yeah, no, I definitely never thought like this before my surgery. I lived my life, you know, thinking about, well, when I'm 80, I'm going to have grandkids and be old and senile in a <laughs> nursing home and it'll be great. Like I was, I was thinking, I mean, even more realistically, I, you know, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to get my BFA, I'm going to move to New York, I'm going to do this, this and this within the first five years. And I mean, all of this stuff, I really kind of almost very rarely lived moment to moment, but I I had no problem. In fact, it was my default to kind of look ahead four, five, 10 years as, as if they were guaranteed. A plan that was, you know, that even if the plan didn't work out, the time, like whether or not those things actually happen within those 10 years, I never questioned whether or not those 10 years would happen, if that makes sense. So the time was always guaranteed to me until my junior year of college. I woke up one morning with a really, really, this was actually my sophomore year. I woke up with a stiff neck like I'd slept wrong, kept thinking it was going to go away. Two weeks later, it kept getting worse. Then over the course of the next year, what went from ooh, ow, pain went to I can't feel anything. So you could take a safety pin and poke my neck, my shoulder and my arm, I could not feel anything. And then one day, the beginning of my junior year of college, I was in voice and speech class, and I had one of the worst vertigo episodes I've ever had in my entire life. And I had had vertigo for, you know, my whole life up until that point. But this one was excruciating. For those of you who don't know what vertigo is, it's like you have the spins when you're drunk, when you're drunk, and you close your eyes, and you can feel the room spinning. It's like that, mm-hmm. but you're sober, and it's times a 100 in intensity, and Man. it can last for days. So I went went to urgent care And this random doctor at a random urgent care in a strip mall in St. Louis said, you know, you've been in for numbness in your arm and your neck, and you've been in for dizziness before. I'm just going to do a CT scan to rule out the brain. I don't think it is the brain. I'm just going to see. So he did a CT scan. 20 minutes later, he comes back and he says, you have uh, what's called an Arnold Chiari malformation, which is where the cerebellum or the base of the brain protrudes into the hole at the bottom of the skull where the brain stem meets the spine. And he said, I can't help you. You need to see a neurosurgeon. You need to see a neurologist. That was in September. Mm-hmm. Saw a neurologist in February. The neurologist looked at my MRIs, said, holy shit, I can't help you. You need to see a neurosurgeon. Calls in the neurosurgeon and the neurosurgeon says, the worrisome amount of cerebellar protrusion is five millimeters. Five millimeters, we start talking about surgery as an option. You don't have an option. Your cerebellum protrudes. 30 millimeters. Oh. So oh my you God. you have to have surgery. And that was the turning point where I'd finally gotten an answer. And I mm-hmm. thought, okay, I have, and at that point, I still had six weeks left of school, something like that, mm-hmm. maybe six weeks. And if I had left, school that year to have surgery, my school would have made me redo my entire junior year, which is in violation of, oh, so many moral and ethical codes, (laughs) not to mention Title IX and all that stuff. But my surgeon said, you can wait. I don't advise it, but if you don't want to have another year of school. And in my mind, it was like, well, I don't want to be here for another two, you know, an an extra amount of time because I need to get to New York and do the thing and whatever. Yeah. But so the six weeks leading up to surgery was, I mean, that was really kind of like the brakes were, you know, slammed on the brakes when I got the diagnosis. And then those six weeks leading up to surgery was kind of that inertia of my entire life up until that point kind of catching up to me. And then I had the surgery and I woke up from surgery and I could feel that everything was okay for the first time in 21 years. And that this was a second chance, a new lease. And so all of the things that I had missed looking forward, I mean, it. it we all know we're going to die. That's just inevitable. But none of us know when it's going to happen. And for a brain surgeon to say, you're 21, you're going to have very intense brain surgery on May 11 of this year, it's like putting an expiration date on your forehead. And I was walking around like, okay, 29 days, 26 days, 12 wow. days tomorrow. So I actually know what it feels like to live every day as though it was my last or as though they were numbered. So all of the time that I had spent before surgery missing Every moment that came my way, I promised myself that's not going to happen this time. I'm not I'm not going to have another moment where I look back at all the stuff that I didn't do or all of the things or the moments that I missed with regret. If I died right now, I would have absolutely zero regrets. I would be so proud of how I lived my life. And my hope is that people can feel this and have this way of living without brain surgery. Yeah, that would be great. But how much better the world would be if we all were a little right? more present and, <laughs> and were a little more grateful. Yeah.
0: So I'm really curious during this time and also beforehand, what your relationship with the arts was like, because... You seem to have this plan b- before your brain surgery. Was that something that was always the plan? Did it switch? And then during your brain surgery and that time, how was your relationship with the arts? Did you find solace in it? Were you kind of mad at it? What was, what was that experience like?
2: I started, oddly enough, so my brother's an actor and a, a writer as well. And he did this long before I did. I really, honestly, I really started doing this because my brother was doing it. And I wanted attention. I Same. wanted.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I yeah, older brothers, man. They're so helpful. Yeah,
2: it's, it's... And I, you know, my brother is uh, six, eight, and I'm, I'm six feet. But I always felt like I was literally and figuratively in his shadow, even though he's the most mm. supportive, brilliant, kind, generous person on the planet. I wanted to be seen, I wanted to be heard, I wanted to feel validated, and I think it had something to do with my body and knowing something was wrong and saying something's wrong and, you know, no one knowing it or believing it or any of that stuff. So I think I craved the validation that that I saw him getting when he was on stage. So mm. for very shallow reasons that's why I started and then I fell madly in love with it. I just couldn't get enough and before surgery, I don't, really, I don't really think I had any sort of... The arts was something that I loved. I don't know if it necessarily provided any sort of feeling of coming home or solace or comfort. It was just, well, I really love this thing and I'm very passionate about it. After I had surgery that summer, so a month and a half later, my school, my college had a partnership with the St. Louis Cabaret Conference. And I had to cancel all of my plans for that summer because I didn't know what what my life was going to look like if I even had right. one. And then I recovered exceptionally fast. And I looked at this cabaret conference that my professor had told me about. And on the faculty, I'm going to drop these names. I'll pick them up later. Was Faith Prince, <laughs> Christine Ebersole, Jason Robert Brown, Alex Rybeck, Ted Firth, Keisha McPhee, Michael Orland, just like unbelievable, unbelievable artists. And so I did that. And I felt for the first time that I artistically had come home. I just, there was something about cabaret that made me feel like I was home. It really, it saved my life. It was the thing that as I was recovering emotionally from the surgery, it was the thing that I turned to. It was those those teachers, those mentors that I would, you know, kept in touch with and had conversations with. It. And the, art, the art form, really, I'd never heard of it before. And it's being yourself on purpose and to have an existential crisis, to work it out by being yourself in the arts was really healing. So after that, when I got to New York, I started, you know, I got my equity card. I got an agent. I, you know, did the off-Broadway thing, but I was still doing cabaret. And that was really this newfound passion and deep love that I had. And since this quarantine, I've really kind of turned to that that art form and fallen in love with it all over again. And I've started this thing with Broadway world called Cabaret Corner, where I'm sitting down with these incredible leaders of that industry and just talking to them about the role that cabaret has played in their lives and i don't know there's just something really really special about the intimacy of cabaret and that there's so much less ego and so at this mm-hmm. time to connect with people about an art form where they can really shed their ego and be themselves has been cathartic. I think for, um, you know, me and and them and the people that I'm talking to.
1: Mm. So so for your cabaret work, I, I don't have any experience with that. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of come up with new works that, that you put together and how that kind of process works for you?
2: Yeah, well, I did a show about the Jewish influence on musical theater, and that one came about because I had a conversation with the head of Jewish studies at Eastern Michigan University. He'd brought a group of students on a trip to New York, and I come in and talk to them and the two of us got drinks afterwards and we both love West Side Story and you know I say you know the jet whistle is the sound of the shofar and all this stuff and I was just Mm -hmm. rambling about how passionate it was about West Side Story and the Jewish influence and he said you should do a show about that about the Jewish influence on musical theater and I faced a lot of anti-semitism in college so I thought who would want to see me talk about Judaism in musical theater and he said why don't you build this show and you come to Eastern Michigan in the fall. I was like, oh, all right, great. <laughs> so... I did it. And then the day after I did it at that time, I emailed Jim Crusoe at Birdland. And I said, you know, I have, I've always wanted to do a show there. He said, what do you have? And I said, well, I have this other cabaret about my life and being an outsider and, you know, brain surgery. And he said, what else? I just well, I just did a show about Jewish Broadway. He said, yeah, let's do that. So that really came about because someone asked me to build it. When I help my clients build a show, I say, let your subconscious guide the pen. So just sit down and make a list of 20 to 25 songs that for some reason, they are on your mind. It's mm-hmm. either the song that you can't get out of your head, or as soon as you're making a list, you know, your pen all of a sudden starts writing down both sides now by Joni Mitchell. And you know, don't question it, just brain dump it on the page. And then the through line, the arc the theme will present itself after you kind of chisel away at that initial list. But cabaret is the intersection of interpretive artistry and creative artistry. And too often when building a show, people miss the forest for the trees when it comes to the creative element because they're creating it for a deadline for the venue mm-hmm. to get it up and make money. But there is some real euphoria and some real creative art artistic expression that comes from building a show so i always tell my clients to again as it seems to be the theme don't let the moment pass you by
1: so you've mentioned your clients a couple of times and you said earlier in the conversation that you're still working with them just remotely how how did you start taking on clients and why did you start doing that
2: so when I first moved to the city, I had taken the conference in St. Louis twice. And I had come to tell a, a very quick story, but I promise i don't answer your question. Uh, the first show that I did was about surgery and coming back to life and all of this stuff. And I did it in St. Louis the first time I had graduated. I'd moved to New York and I was back and I was at my favorite breakfast place i always order the same thing it wasn't on the menu but it was ridiculous it was like a disgustingly stupid and meticulous order <laughs> and the what it was just like absurd what was it woman- <laughs> It was a breakfast burrito with eggs Jonathan style, two types of cheese on top, bacon on the inside, and potatoes extra crispy with no salsa. It's
0: Just oh my like, god!
2: So. And I'm normally not <laughs> like that at all. I'm just the furthest thing from a picky eater. When they did that burrito like that, I still fuck. About it, my mouth is watering. It's my favorite.
1: What What are Jonathan style?
2: So it's this restaurant in St. Louis called Southwest Diner and the owner's name is Jonathan and he makes these eggs. It's like scrambled eggs that are so fucking fluffy. I don't know how he does it. it must be witchcraft. <laughs> and it's they're like mixed in with hot sauce and like two types of cheese so like
1: mm. how? wow. What?
2: You put your fork in the egg, and you, and it, it's like a huge cheese pole with, oh, my God. That sounds but it's, amazing. It, it's unbelievable. It's unreal. <laughs> and i have never met him until I went back a couple of months ago. And I started crying. I shook his hand, and I said, it is a real honor. And he said, this has never happened to me before. And I said, well, I have <laughs> dreamt about this moment, sir. Thank you for your <laughs> eggs. <laughs> they are amazing. Oh, man. So I was at this restaurant. I ordered my fucked up order and uh, (laughs) there's a woman sitting next to me at the counter. She somehow had gotten the exact same thing. I, I don't know how. So we bonded over that and then told her my story. She told me her story and said, what are you doing back in town? I told her I have the show. If you want to come see it, I have an extra ticket. I would really love for you to be there. And she said, I will think about it. Maybe. Mm. I said, all right. So I do the show. And afterwards, she comes up to me and she has tears in her eyes. And she says, I wasn't supposed to be here. And I said, I know, but I'm so glad that you came. And she said, I think you misunderstand me. I was not supposed to be here at all. When I met you this morning, I had just come from another round of chemo and I went to my favorite restaurant. I had my favorite meal and that was gonna be it. I was gonna go home and end it because I just can't, I couldn't keep doing it anymore. But then I came and saw your show and to see somebody stand up there as themselves and be vulnerable and truthful about beating death and coming back to life, you have inspired me to keep fighting. And so I heard from her a couple years later, she's in remission. So when I say that cabaret, when done well and thoughtfully and with purpose and intention and integrity, when I say that it has the power to change lives, I'm speaking literally. So that was my experience with cabaret. I come to New York and I see Broadway stars doing cabarets with titles like Because I Can. And mm. the whole thing was, here's my <laughs> solo show. Somebody at some venue contacted me and said, you know, we'd really love for you to do a show. And here I am, I'm singing these songs because I can. And they're calling it a cabaret. And in my mind, I'm like, well, this isn't a cabaret. I'd call this a masturbatory concert, but yes. it's not a cabaret. <laughs> and if we can be so specific... As to whether or not the band's visit was a musical or a play with music, then I think we can afford to be that specific about cabarets versus concerts versus readings and reviews and showcases Mm -hmm. just because there's a microphone and a piano in a small dark room does not make it a cabaret and then i thought well but where would people have learned this i learned it from the conference but that's because my school had a partnership there really is no formal training program for young working professionals in the musical theater world for cabaret education so i thought i'll do it why not and i'd always loved teaching i always wanted to teach i thought if it doesn't work out in new york i'll you know move back to the Midwest. West and get a master's degree, and then teach at the collegiate level. But the first, I, I started my company, bridging the gap, in the summer of 2018. I had just quit my serving job a couple weeks earlier. And my first session had 10 students. It's a five-week course. We bring a guest teacher in in the fourth week. And then we have a showcase at Birdland. The first class had 10 students. Most of them were my friends that I recruited the shit out of and begged them <laughs> to you know take a chance on this thing. And right before this pandemic started i had two back-to-back one-off classes lined up and two you know recurring five week-long classes scheduled but it was really to kind of bridge the gap between musical theater and cabaret That cabaret is more than just singing your audition book to a spot on the wall but it's really being yourself on purpose and having a conversation with the audience and i hadn't really seen that but now i see it all the time it's great
1: Yeah. Having that purpose behind that art is really impactful. I mean, like just hearing your story, you know, you hear a lot about how a lot of artists are like, I want to impact the most amount of people as possible. And I want to have a big realm of influence. And then you hear these stories and that's when it really matters, right? When it's not, you're not pandering to like a larger audience, you're you're impacting the lives of those that are around you and whether you know it or not. And that's That's the true kind of value that the arts have, where you may not know that that's where that that woman is at in her life. But if it it changes the way that her life is headed, it's a, a definite value to the world
2: that's right mm-hmm. I I don't know which book it is in Judaism I don't know if it's the Talmud or what but there is something that says it's either if you've saved one person's life you've saved the world maybe if it's if you've changed one person's life you've changed the world but you know I think if what you're doing is specific to one person it will be specific to all but if you are just trying to throw spaghetti at the wall and get as many people to do this thing as you possibly can you'll fail if it's unspecific to one it'll be unspecific to all but yeah i don't know that's the beauty about cabaretism you're singing you can really look a person in the eye and sing to them and really try and cultivate empathy with this artistic expression to change their corner of the world with them
1: mm. yeah. yeah no i lo- i love that <laughs>
0: It's true, Um, yeah. I think that's something in the arts that a lot of people, sometimes they get a weird kind of blinder on where they're like, well, I just, I want to make an impact. I want to make an impact. And they uh miss all of the small, seemingly small impacts that they make along the way. Like it's, you know if yep. you just change one person's life that's that's enough for me personally
2: <laughs> yeah it's how can you be the pebble on the body of water you yeah. just toss the pebble and watch the ripples eventually by being one pebble you will reach every single piece of that body of water but you have to cast the stone first but i, I you know i just think that there are some people who you know i, I, I don't know it's <sighs> if if there's no purpose behind what you're doing. I mean, it's what Jen and Simon Sinek talk about. It's, you know, mm-hmm. why you do what you do. If you yeah. can't answer why, if you're doing it just because you can, I, I just, I don't see what the point is. What value does that bring to your life and to the world? This doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me.
0: Hey, everybody. Just wanted to jump in before we get into our final questions to let you know where you can find Ari. Uh, so he made it so incredibly easy for you. It is a one-stop shop at his website, com. He has everything for cabaret, for students, for his professional life. So anything you want to know about him, you can find on his website. He also has his Facebook and Instagram links there as well. So uh, with that being said, let's jump into our final questions.
1: So Ari, what is the hardest thing for you, do you think, about pursuing the arts?
2: Oh, fuck. Um... <laughs>
1: All right. Next question. Um,
2: <laughs> What's the hardest thing for me about pursuing the arts? Wow. Um, fuck, you know, I that I have. No, that's not it. God damn it, I don't know. You know, I've been really blessed. I've been really blessed that it it hasn't been that difficult that I've been able to do what I've done with with relative ease. I don't – but the hardest part, I mean –
1: Is there anything that you speak to your your students about that they either have blockers in their mind of getting to the next step or or something that you kind of open up their eyes to?
2: Yeah, they don't feel like – their story is worth telling or that anyone Mm. would care yeah i guess the hardest part is seeing people who have incredible stories but who because of the culture of our industry and the society that we live in have been told that what they say feel and think is not important enough to share that's really- really, 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 really heartbreaking, so yeah, I guess a lack of empowerment among the masses of actors it's just really painful, it's painful yeah. to see
0: that's the first time anyone has brought that up, and i it's even kind of passed through my mind every once in a while, but yeah it's that is it's very hard, it's very hard, yeah. to yeah,
2: and you know there are there are. I mean, you can edit this out, but it's fucking true. You (laughs) uh, watch the live streams on the Growing Studios Facebook page. There are agents and casting directors who are telling actors that there is no work for us right now. To that, I say, no, no, there's no work for you right now. Yes. There's no work for <laughs> you agents and casting directors right now. We we our work never stops. But shame on you for allowing us to believe that our work is only worth something when there's a job to be booked. That's not yeah. why we're artists. We would be artists whether or not, you know, a casting director gave us the job or not. We would we never stop being artists, but mm-hmm. I I I just that kind of top-down mentality to keep actors powerless that's yeah. really hard even now during a pandemic i mean come on right we're all unemployed just <laughs> say there's no work for any of us don't say there's no work for us yeah you. that's bullshit.
0: <laughs> oh yeah all right next question totally on a different uh wavelength
2: <laughs> yeah. what
0: is your favorite piece of art right now
2: the lion by benjamin Scheuer. Benjamin is a composer and a singer-songwriter who wrote a one-man show about his life. It was about his dad died when he was in high school. I think it was in high school. Yeah, so his kind of coming to terms with that. And then also as a young man in his 20s, he was diagnosed with cancer. And so it's his one-man show kind of about what does it look like to take on the role of you know your father once he leaves but then i mean just that it's just brilliant like i can't Mm. possibly sum it up but he does have one of my not one of my favorite lyric in the entire musical theater canon which is truth gets revealed when you're broken and healed every heart is made stronger by scars it is unbelievable and it's on Broadway HD so if you haven't watched it Ooh. watch it it's an hour long it's just him and his guitars and it's amazing
1: amazing another one that kind of gets even <laughs> further away than the from the other <laughs>
2: questions Bring it on. um what keeps you up at night our president mhm mm-hmm. i i just I can't, I can't watch the news anymore. I've started, Jen Waldman has inspired me to start reading the news instead of watching it, but I mm. just can't, I I can't do it. And, and also, I mean, as a very, very proud and outspoken Jew, I know what it looks like for an administration to other people and make people feel like they do not belong. History repeats itself, and I just... It makes me sick how he says what he says. And the fact that he will probably win again, it just, yeah. It's
0: heartbreaking, isn't it?
2: Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Not to compare Trump to Hitler, but Hitler was elected.
0: We He's do it all the time in elected. our family. <laughs> Good.
2: I think, you know, the one thing that I, you know, my, my mom's a Holocaust educator. So, But the the mm-hmm. one thing that I caution people is you know when they say that the the tents the tent city the the camps at the border mm-hmm. I'm just, i used to see people you know comparing those children to anne frank or comparing those camps to auschwitz like uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't i don't really love the pawning of the jewish experience of the holocaust for political gain today but i yeah trump and hitler very similar both too many similarities (laughs) and you know what really scares me how the the only thing that needs to happen is for the military to support trump and we're all fucked Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. long as the military puts country first we're not as fucked as we could be but just think about i mean that's what happened in germany you know Mm-hmm. Hitler said something and then the tanks rolled through the towns and were banging on doors and, you know, the Gestapo would come and take people out of their homes. I just, how terrifying would it be if the military blindly supported our president? Oh, yep. that keeps me up at night.
0: As it does most of us, I feel. Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Boy, Yikes. Wow.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: to finish off our questions (laughs) yeah what one piece of advice would you give someone who wants to pursue the arts
2: what's one piece of advice that i would give to somebody who wants to pursue the arts you must separate your career from your life if you put your self-worth into this industry and into the art that you do you will be miserable but if you, how many? This is what I talk about in the the happiness awards. That uh, what pharmacist do you know that says? Oh boy, I'm at Dwayne Reed, but I cannot wait until I'm promoted, or I, you know, once I get that transfer to CVS, then I will be happy. Like Mm -hmm. that That sounds fucked up. That's ridiculous. But we as actors, we say all the time, or I hear people say all the time, when I get my equity card, I'll then be happy. Once I get my agent, then I will be happy. Once I get my Broadway show, I'll then be happy. You won't be. The first thing that happens once you get those things is, what now? What's next? But if you fill your life, if you do things that give your life meaning, and purpose and you allow your art to be fueled by your life and not the other way around you you will never lose you will always win because you're putting yourself and your life in the driver's seat and also to do something every day that reminds you that you're alive because god forbid wake up one morning something happens and you look back and all you see is wasted time that's what i would say
0: Hey, thanks for listening.
2: For
1: more information about the podcast, visit our website, www.artisticpodcast.com.
0: If you liked the episode, do us a favor and share it with a friend. It's the best way to help people find our podcast and will help support the show.
1: For updates on new episodes and content, you can follow us at The Artistic Pod on Instagram and Facebook.
0: Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week. See ya. (laughs) Sorry. Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready.
1: Okay, this episode brought to you by Southwest Diner. This is where you come in. Is
0: it Johnson-style eggs?
1: It's Jonathan-style eggs. Jonathan, why
0: do I keep thinking Johnson? Are you wanting some cheesy fucking delicious eggs?
1: (laughs) Are you in St. Louis?
0: Yes, you should go to the Southwest Diner and get yourself some Jonathan-style food. I don't know. Do you think it comes in, like, you can have it in any meal that has eggs i would assume
1: so i'm pretty sure you can have it with anything that even contains eggs so i'd imagine bread um pancakes (laughs) do pancakes have eggs pasta (laughs) jonathan style (laughs) pasta
0: jonathan style lava cake (laughs) Mm. it has eggs
1: in it and a lot of cheese
0: yeah oh god
1: so come on down to st louis (laughs) southwest (laughs) diner we're but there after,
0: after the global pandemic please stop oh, yeah. spreading Wait. coronavirus
1: <laughs> but if they do offer uh we should we should have checked this but if they oh, offer if they do delivery take out or, or delivery yeah, yeah yes. uh get Head on down. it yeah yeah but if you're In from Saint out
0: Lewis. of state don't go yet
1: yeah all of this this sponsor is actually sponsored by ari <laughs> axelrod
0: <laughs> no it's sponsored by his dog
1: <laughs> what's ari's dog's name
0: Hold on, I have to find oh, it. Oh no,
1: you didn't know.
0: I didn't know. I don't know it off the top of my head. Okay.
1: Do 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 Southwest Diner, whoa, whoa. Hello? <laughs> Did you hear the ding-dong? The I ding did hear the ding-dong. Honestly, the ding-dong scares Leo. the shit out That's of me.
0: The, na- <laughs> the ding-dong scares the absolute bejesus out of me. The dog's name's Leo. I was going to okay. guess something like that, but I, I didn't know the exact i i didn't know the name (laughs) i was gonna get something like Leo.
1: (laughs) (laughs) well this is the best commercial that we've ever done and the only one and potentially Uh, the only sponsor we will ever have and this is an unofficial (laughs) sponsor they did not actually sponsor this yeah um but we want to sponsor them so yeah so so mom go go to southwest (laughs) diner